Good morning. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Yeah, New Year's is an interesting time. As, as a child, I used to view New Year's as it, it was just a wealth of open possibilities, right? I mean, it's an entirely new year. You don't have to worry about what came in the past. We're moving to this new year. But as you grow, you quickly realize that that's really not the case, right? I mean, New Year's is just another date on the calendar. And just because next week is not this year doesn't mean that all the burdens, trials, everything of this year don't carry into next year, right? And so New Year's kind of transitioned from, oh, it's this open possibilities when you're a child. And as I grew older, New Year's became eventually like this milestone, a reminder that you're not going to beat time, right? Time is going to march on. Yeah, and, and everybody, as we get close to Christmas, you hear people saying, I'm not ready. I need more time. I want to extend this week. And New Year's is this reminder that you can't extend time. That time is going to move on regardless of what you want or what you need. Except at one particular moment in time. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 10. And in Joshua chapter 10, we see a case where essentially time or the sun and the moon stand still. But let me set the stage for you because it has been a little bit of time since we were in Joshua. So let me again set the stage of where we're at. You read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 10. It says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king, as he had done to Jericho and its king, how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and war among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men and warriors. So that briefly sets the scene, if you remember. At the beginning of Joshua, Israel is not in the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua is taken over as the, the physical earthly leader of Israel. But Yahweh is still Israel's king and their leader of their nation. And so they cross over the Jericho, and remember seeing that, that God parts the, the Jericho for them, and they cross over the river into the Promised Land. And they approach the first city, and they march around the city, and the walls fall down. And God had said, I'm going to hand this city over to you. I said the river jo Jericho, I meant the river Jordan, and they approach the city Jericho. Then they move on, and they face their first defeat at Ai, a smaller town than Jer Jericho, a smaller town than they're getting ready to battle. But it defeats them because they had sin within their midst. One of the people had taken the gold, taken the treasure, and hid it from their conquering of Jericho. And so God doesn't allow them victory at Ai. And so then they remove that sin from among their midst, and they have victory at Ai. 
Then they're faced with these foreign travelers that came from a faraway land. And they come and want to make peace because we've heard about what's going on. And so Joshua makes peace with them. And as we know, they were not from far away. They were from right around the corner from this little town called Gibeon. And so they had made a peace treaty with them. So they honor their treaty. They honor their commitment to them. And essentially fold Gibeon into the fold of Israel. And so what it looks like now is that here they are. They're coming in to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abram. I'm going to give you this land. That he had made to Moses. I'm going to give you this land. That he had made to the entire nation of Israel before they cross over. I'm going to give you this land. And so at this point, they've essentially driven a wedge through the middle of the promised land and kind of started to separate it. And so you have the northern part and the southern part that were still not conquered yet. And what we'll see today is that Israel's going to go and focus on the southern part and conquering that southern part of the promised land. But to do that, they first need to deal with another crisis. And that is this king, Adonai Zedek, who's realizing, okay, this motley group of people that have been coming through the desert that we heard about, they beat Egypt, but that was 40 years ago. They may not still be the the same as they were back then. They cross over the Jordan. They beat Jericho. They beat Ai. They bring Gibeon into their fold as an ally. And Adonai Zedek realizes, okay, This is not something that we can ignore. This Israel is not just going to go away. They don't look like they're going to be satisfied with just these three cities. We need to gather together to stop them. So in verse 3, it says, So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, this is the first occurrence of the name of Jerusalem within the Bible. The king of Jerusalem sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Purim, king of uh, Jarmuth, to Japha, king of Lachish, and to Beer, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jermuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon, and made war against it. So they realize, we may not be able to take Israel head on at the moment, but you know what we can do? We can cut off our brethren who have abandoned us and joined with Israel. So let's go attack Gibeon, get them out of the way, and then we can figure out how to deal with this guy Joshua and these people of Israel. And the men of Gibeon, verse 6, sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the mighty people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And so that sets the stage for where we are at. This is really... The first large-scale battle within the Promised Land that Israel is going to face. They marched around Jericho, the walls came down. Then they mopped up and cleaned up 
the mess that God left behind. Then they go to AI. They lose, but then God conquers AI for them. Then Gibeon is turned over to them, and even though they failed in that, we know that God's going to honor that, that error that they made in tr- making a peace treaty with Gibeon. And Gibeon's going to remain with Israel all the way through their existence. Now, there are going to be three things that we're going to see. What, is, what did God try and teach Israel through these events? What did he try and teach them by writing these things down? Why was this recorded? What was the intention that Joshua, that God, wanted the people of Israel to learn and to understand? So I think the first thing that we're going to see is that Yahweh is Israel's faithful warrior. Yahweh is Israel's faithful warrior. We see this in verses 9 and 10. And he says, So Joshua came up to them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azka and Makedah. So this is not a new revelation that you're going to conquer the promised land. It's not new for them. Joshua had told them this before they entered the promised land. Moses had told them this back when they first got to the promised land, and they said, oh, no, it's too much. Joshua, Caleb, and Moses said, we can do this. The people refused to listen. God had told them this back when they were in captivity. God had told them this back when Israel consisted of a couple, Abram and Sarai. And he told those two, I'm going to give you this land. See, the promise had already been made. It just hadn't been fulfilled yet. But once God makes that promise, he's always going to be faithful to it. And he doesn't say to Israel, Israel, here's what I want you to do. Go take care of it, and when you're done, let me know, and I'll check it out. Instead, God goes with them. And it says Yahweh threw them into a panic before Israel. Yahweh was the one that did this. And if you go on to read the rest of this verse, this is one of those verses where the translation's a little bit like off or a little bit wonky at times. So if you're using like a NIV, ESV, one of those, it may read this way. And the Lord, Yahweh, threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azka and Makedah. Let me read this in the way that it reads in the Hebrew. In Hebrew it says, And Yahweh threw them into a panic before Israel. And Yahweh struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. And Yahweh chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran. And Yahweh struck them as far as Azka and Makedah. None of these four things here are attributed to Israel. God's the one that chased. God's the one that struck them down. God's the one that gave them a great blow. Israel's along for the ride. God's the one that is fulfilling these things. And if there's any confusion, we keep reading in verse 11. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azka, and they died. 
There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So Joshua says, if you're keeping statistics, this is God's battle that he fought. And if you want to know the statistics, he killed more of the enemy with his hailstones than any of us did with the sword. And so God is Israel's warrior. They're not going into the promised land alone. They're not going into the promised land unequipped. They're not going into the promised land not knowing what's going to happen. God's already spoiled the end of the movie for them. He's already told them, I'm going to give you this land. All you've got to do is come with me, and we will go take this land. So he's faithful, and he is their warrior. The next thing we see, along with being Israel's faithful warrior, Yahweh hears and answers Joshua's prayer. Yahweh hears and answers Joshua's prayer. We pick up in verse 12. So that you can imagine the, what's going on. So they're fighting. They have all these people. God, there's hailstones coming down, you know, killing the majority of the army. Israel's mopping up what's ever left behind. But just like us, as Christmas and New Year's rapidly approach, and we realize we need more time to get ready, Joshua realizes the sun's going to go down. This day is going to end. We're going to run out of time. So in verse 12, it says, At that time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And as the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for a whole day? You can approach this account in two ways. One, you can work to explain it. You can work to figure out what happened. Well, it was a, an eclipse or... Yeah, it was just a longer time of the season. Or you could even look, I've seen people, there's this missing day in history or whatever. You can approach it in that way. Or you can approach it in the understanding that this is a miracle. And miracles operate outside the normal natural order. The way that nature normally functions. It's the difference between a miracle. We talk about the miracle of childbirth. Childbirth is awesome, but it's not a miracle. It's the natural, normal way that God ordered this universe. People rising from the dead, sun stopping in the sky, that is not normative nature. That's a miracle. Miracles are inexplicable by using nature's rules. You can't explain miracles by using the rules of science or nature or any of these things. They're outside of that. And so this is outside of that. I don't know what God did. I don't know if God made it appear that it stopped, if he just lengthened the day, he made the minutes long. I don't know. It's God, and it's his creation. Think of it this way. Grandkids got Lego sets for, for Christmas. But went and sat down with the grandkid, and he builds the model. 
It's on the box. It's on the instructions. He has the Lego model. If he wants to take it apart and build something completely different, it's his prerogative. It's his model that he owns that he can do with what he wants. I could go and say, that's not the way it's supposed to be built. He would say, it's fine. I can build it however I want. And this is one of those situations. The sun doesn't stand still. It's God's creation. He can do what he wants with it. Think of it that way. This is God's Lego set. And if he wants the sun to stop so that the battle can continue, the sun will stop as the battle continues. We don't have to explain it. We don't have to come up with some sort of logical understanding of this is the physics of what happened. We trust God that this is what he did. And he worked out all the other details for us. That's not even the amazing part of this story. That's the part of the story that we stop and we go, how did the sun stop? How did the moon stop? This is incredible. That's not what was incredible to the author. He says, there, in verse 14, there has not been a day like it, before or since, when Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. This is the amazing thing for Joshua. As he writes down, as he remembers the occurrence, his memory is that we are in this battle, and I pray to God, I pray to Yahweh, and make this command that the sun stands still, that the moon stands still, and they do. For Joshua, this is an amazing and incredible occurrence that Yahweh, the creator of this universe, that Yahweh, the king of Israel, would stoop down to listen to one of his creations. That he would hear one of his creations. Now, does that mean that Joshua changed God's plan for how this day was going to proceed? Of course not. We just saw it in the Westminster Confession. God has a plan, and he's going to work out his providential plan. Joshua was a part of that. Joshua was praying within God's will, and so God fulfills those prayers. So Yahweh heard and answered Joshua's prayer. Third thing is that Yahweh is victorious in the promised land. Yahweh is victorious in the promised land. Now buckle your seatbelt because this is a longer passage. But it's incredible what happens here. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makkedon. So the kings realize this is lost. Not only is Israel killing us, but there's rocks falling out of the sky. Like, how do you fight against rocks falling out of the sky? And so they flee, and they hide in a cave, because the rocks can't get us in the cave. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For Yahweh your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makkedah. 
Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And understand that in those days, a battle would take place, and when one army won, and they would capture the foreign king, the other king, they would bring him to the the king, the victorious king, and, and force him down onto the ground, and that victorious king would put his foot on the neck of that king that lost the battle. And we see something similar take place, but at the same time, fundamentally different. It says, verse 24, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near, put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So it seems similar to what the secular kings at the time would do. But it's also different, because what's different? Whose feet are on the neck of these kings. It's not Joshua. It's not even Yahweh. But rather, it's all the commanders of the the people. You, come here, people. Put your feet on the neck of these kings. I know you're not kings, but you're functioning as a person of the only king, of Yahweh. You're here in his agency. You're here acting in his stead. Joshua almost turns this idea of putting your foot on the neck of this foreign king into this pseudo-sacrament, you could call it. Just as we do baptism and communion to memorialize these events in our life, the salvation that we received, the, the redemption that we received in baptism, the redemption that was accomplished through the death of Christ on the cross in communion. Here, Joshua wants his military leaders to remember that God has promised you to deliver these people. Look at this. The greatest foe that we've faced yet and the five kings that organize this are on the ground with your feet on their necks. Not because of you. Because you didn't. You just followed behind. You didn't even kill as many as God did. But God is doing this for you and with you. Don't forget this. Remember this, he says. And afterwards, verse 26, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Again, I'm struck just by the difference between Rahab and 
Adonai Zedek. That here's Rahab, when she's faced with destruction is coming, she throws herself at the mercy of Yahweh. Adonai Zedek, when he sees destruction coming, instead of throwing himself at the mercy of Yahweh, he tries to array himself against Yahweh. He gets as many people as he can, builds his armies as big as he can, to go against Israel and their king. And it's a tragic error on his part because he, he loses. He loses his life, and the cave that they fled to no longer becomes a place of refuge, but becomes a grave for them. A grave that will be there, it says, to this very day. When Joshua wrote this down, that cave was still there as a reminder. A reminder to Israel and a reminder to anybody else that wants to stand against God. Verse 28. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And Yahweh gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of a sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and laid siege to it, and fought against it. And Yahweh gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until... <laughs> He left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon. And they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its kings, and its towns, and every person in it. He left nothing remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction, every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword, and devoted to destruction, every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as Yahweh, God of Israel, commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barna as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. Yahweh is victorious in the promised land. He promised Israel, you're going to go take this land. Israel didn't believe it. And here, now they believe. They follow God. They're listening to God. And God is showing them a fulfillment of his promise to Abram, to Moses them. Verse 42. 
And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time. Why? Because Yahweh, God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And you say, that's great. And if I was an ancient Israelite at this time, I get the application. Go take the promised land. We're to take the promised land. Why does Joshua write this down? To remind them of what happened, how God took the land for them. The, the land that they currently lived in, that they resided in that they would have to defend, that they would have to continue to clear. But what does that mean for us? Let me set the stage a second time. At the beginning, we looked at the idea that we're setting the stage for Israel, where they were at. But now, what about for us? You see, for us, we are not Israel. We're not Israel. We haven't been given the command, go conquer the promised land and kill all that live in it. We don't have that. That was given to Israel at the time. The promise of Israel, of Israel as a nation, and their existence, their promise was revealed by a covenant that God made with Abram. God sits down with Abram and says, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. Before that point, there's no understanding or idea of Israel. It's at that point that it's revealed that you're going to turn into this great nation. Israel, as an actual nation, was established at the foot of Mount Sinai with the Mosaic Covenant, where they they finally gather. God takes them out of captivity. They get to the mountain, and they receive the law. They receive the instructions. They They find out, here's how you're going to function as my nation. I'm going to be your king. You're going to have priests. You're going to have these laws. We're going to build a a tabernacle now, a temple eventually. Lays out for them what he desires. We're not Israel. We weren't part of that covenant made at Mount Sinai. The promise of the church was revealed at the same covenant to Abram. When it says, you're going to bless the rest of the world. The people that receive the blessing that are not Israel is the church. The rest of the world receives that blessing. We're the church. It narrows it down when you hit Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, that hint of a promise to Abram starts to crystallize. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The church is an actual entity 
was finally established at Pentecost, when God starts to fulfill those covenant promises in Jeremiah. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to put my law on your heart. It's the Holy Spirit coming in and dwelling you that happens at Pentecost. That's the establishment of this covenant, this church that God sets up. The new covenant replaced, fulfilled the Mosaic covenant, but not the Abrahamic covenant. It was still there. It was still running. Those promises still exist. So let me go back through our three points real quick. Yahweh is Israel's faithful warrior. Yahweh hears and answers Joshua's prayer. Yahweh is victorious in the promised land. Let me restate those again for you. Yahweh is a faithful warrior. Yahweh hears and answers prayer. And Yahweh is victorious. Think of them that way. Yahweh was Israel's faithful warrior. But just because we're not part of Israel, just because this time of conquering the land, doesn't mean that God is no longer a warrior. God promised victory, but he didn't leave Israel alone to fight that battle. We've been promised something else. We've been given our marching orders, our battle orders, so to speak. You can crystallize it down to the simple statement of make disciples. That's the order that you've been given. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. The go is not the action. The go is not the the imperative. The command is make. Make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. I want you now to go make disciples. And I'm going to be with you as you go do this. I will not abandon you. It's the same thing as him telling Israel, go take the promised land. And I'm going to be with you as you do it. They had their orders, their command their will of God that they had to fulfill, and we have ours. You see, the battle that we've been called to is not a physical battle. It's not a battle of taking land or killing people, but rather it's a spiritual battle. It's a fight for the salvation of those that are lost, those that are separated from God. We're not called to fight with spears or swords or even stones from the sky, but rather with the word of God, with the Holy Spirit that indwells us. See, Israel didn't fight alone, and we're not alone. We were promised a helper, and we received that helper at our salvation. God has given you his word. He's explained his will. His will is for you to go make disciples, teach them to obey his word. We know what we have to do. Now, are we going to trust in the command that God's given to us? Make disciples. Teach them, baptize them, train them up for them to go out and make more disciples. You see, God is still a warrior. Right now, that battle is spiritual, but at some point, it's going to again turn physical. We know that Jesus is going to return again. And when Jesus returns again, he's going to return in the same way that he appeared to Joshua. 
Because you remember, he appeared earlier to Joshua. And he said, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. Joshua appear, I mean, Jesus appears to Joshua as a warrior. He came to us in the New Testament as a lamb. But when he comes back again, it will once again be as a warrior. Yahweh hears and answers Joshua's prayer. Yahweh hears and answers your prayers. You see, our prayer is not limited. We're not told, just pray for the big things. Just pray for the difficult things. Just pray for when you don't know what to do. Yeah, those are times you should pray. But pray for everything. Pray for all of the events and activities and thoughts and people within your life. It's interesting that when the disciples ask Jesus, tell us how to pray. You know, he immediately goes to praying for just the daily provisions and activities in, in our life. Not, we'll wait for the big moments and big events. Our prayer should be conformed to God's will. This is why Joshua's prayer was so wildly successful, because he knew God's will. He knew God's instructions. He knew God's design, so he prayed within his will. Our prayers can be wildly successful when we're praying within God's will. But you've got to know what his will is to be able to pray. See? The last one, Yahweh is victorious in the promised land. Yahweh is victorious. See, in God's view, at that moment in time, yeah, the promised land was really already conquered. I mean, once God set that out, that the promised land is going to be yours, Abram, at that point in time, it was a done deal. It just had to work out the details. But there's no doubt that Israel was going to possess that land at some point in history because God willed it. God designed it. God had promised victory. Yeah, this is not like when I call my wife and I tell her, hey, I promise I'll be home by 6 o'clock. And then I start driving home and there's a bunch of traffic and accidents and I don't get home on time. Car breaks down, you know, and I'm hours late. That's not how God promises things. Again, think back. This is God's world, his creation, he is sovereign, providential over all of it. When he says, this is what's going to take place, this is what I'm going to do, there's nothing that surprises him. There's no traffic that gets in his way. No poor planning, not leaving on time. No car that blows up. None of that stops God. He's sovereign. It's his world. It's his Lego set. He's going to do what he wills. Now, you have a decision just like Israel had a decision. Israel's decision was you get to the promised land, send the spies in, can't conquer it. Oh, we're going to listen to the spies rather than God. Now they're listening to God and finding God fulfilling their promises. Their promises. You get to make a decision. Am I going to believe that Yahweh is victorious and get on board with his plan? Or am I going to go, well, he's going to do it, whatever, and not find the blessing of being a part 
plan that he has. You see, he's already told us how this works out. He said, Mark 13, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. you want to be a part of that victory. Those that are part of that victory are those that are saved. Those that have made the decision, like Rahab, like Joshua, like this generation of Israel here, we're going to listen to Yahweh. We're going to follow the instructions he's given to us. Or, do you want to be with Adonai Zedek? Do you want to be with the king of Jericho and all these other kings in the promised land. You want to not listen, not believe what God has said. So when we read this, it's not a command to pray for miraculous things. It's not a command to pray for outrageous things. It's not even an instruction that God's going to fulfill your crazy prayer. It's not an instruction to go conquer the promised land. It is a reminder that Yahweh is king. He's king over Israel. He's king over the church. He's king over this entire creation. Are we going to follow him? Follow his will? His instructions? Repent of our sin and accept the forgiveness that Christ offered on the cross. So for me, as we go into the new year, is a reminder that time is going to fly past. And God knows how long this earth has. I don't. What I do know is that God wants me to make disciples, train them. He's given me my marching orders, just like Joshua fulfilled them. My encouragement for you this year is to fulfill those orders that God has given you. We close this in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so grateful for Joshua's faithfulness and for Israel's faithfulness at this time. But way, way more than that, we are so grateful for your faithfulness that we can see throughout history the promises that you've made and your fulfillment of those. That nothing will stand in your way, even our disobedience will not stop your plans. I pray that you would just encourage our hearts, that you would just drive us to have uh, just an urge to share your gospel with everyone that we meet. That we would share with them the glory that you work in our lives and throughout everyone's lives. In Christ's name.